Welcome back to Chunky Glasses, the podcast. This is episode number 106. Uh, the episode that almost wasn't, actually. Uh, this was... This is about a year ago when we had Ben Tufts on the program for the first time. We're talking after and uh, talking about, you know, like ideas for this, what we can do. Because I, you know, I I generally plan this stuff out, but I'm open to uh, talking about other stuff because I don't know everything. Nobody does. And uh, and also, um, that's part of what music is, sharing all this knowledge and and putting it together and stuff that you're, you're always going to be learning. Uh, so, uh, Ben being a fantastic drummer, has a lot of fantastic drummer friends said, you know, I, I want to put together a panel and, uh, and talk about these unsung drummers, drummers that may have uh, influenced, uh, them drummers you, you probably have heard of, but didn't know you were listening to and stuff. So, uh, we recorded this back in late 2014. It was one of the last ones we recorded last year. Uh, the conversation went on for three hours, so been sort of sitting on it trying to figure out what the hell do we do with this uh the answer immediate answer is that we're just going to break it into two parts here um but uh i actually had not planned on putting this out just yet uh but was i like, talking to charlie uh from trillions and avers uh, after the avers set here in dc uh and uh i was talking he was, he was saying how um that he was a, a really big fan of of drums and was was trying was learning i'm sure he can play it because he can pretty much play everything uh the guy's a rock machine but um you know it was exploring it more and really stoked to like learn more about this stuff and i said you know uh so am i i started playing drums this year and uh, and just sitting down with these guys to talk about this filled me in on a whole new sort of world of stuff that uh gave me a lot of stuff to think about so uh so sat down and uh Many many hours of editing later, we have we have something that you can put in your ears. For this one, uh, you guys know Adam. Uh, you might not know Adam uh, that Adam was in a band called Virginia Coalition. Adam is a drummer, um, so so Adam came by as usual. Uh, ben and then uh, Ben's friend Mike Smirnoff, who plays uh, with Justin Jones among other people, uh, and uh, sat down and just sort of sort of loose open conversation about all these drummers that. Has sort of built the backbone of rock and roll and music in general um, that have maybe hidden the shadows or maybe not had enough light cast on them. Um, but like I said, this is going to be broken in two parts right now. Uh, we're going to hit the first part of this. So uh, let's just get to it. This is episode number 106 of Junkie Glasses, the podcast. And uh, this is Ben Tufts and Mike Smirnoff and uh, Adam Dawson talking about unsung drummers. And it finishes here. Two men enter. One man Nearly a two-word review of just a shit sandwich. That right there is a logical power.
it's just fucking yeah. I'm wearing it like it's sticking out like a boner. <laughs> in gym class, <laughs> I actually enjoy starting on things like that. You say that, and it's like, all right, yeah. <laughs> people are hooked. Yeah. Uh, so if you guys are ready, and it's just gonna be like audibles. So you tell me a track, I'm okay? Work it and then pull it out, and then all right. <laughs> so yeah, we're all here. It's uh, it's it's Mike Smirnoff, Ben Tufts, me. Um, we're we're all gonna do the unsung drummers thing. We got. Uh, Bourbon, guacamole. We got uh, beach towels spread out on the floor in case any of us need to need to catch a beat over what we're hearing. We got homemade gin. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so who wants to get started, man? Uh, well, I just want to thank Kevin for letting. Yeah, us do absolutely, this. absolutely. Um, My and, pleasure. You know, you know, I love the basement. And so. is there a? Uh, I mean, so does does every, like. I'll just my my whole group, all the guys, and this was sort of accidentally, but all the guys I managed to get all came from between like 1990 and 1996, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I think I got those guys because that that was where uh, that was where I kind of like really started thinking about playing the drums as opposed to just smashing the shit out of it and doing doing more interesting things. Um, so did anybody else get any like? Were there any kind of uh, you know? Like themes happening? Did you get anybody from a certain place, or were you guys spread I think out? Adam wants to know. Tell us about yourself. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. everybody knows everybody. Everybody, everybody knows everybody. But where'd you get? Where'd you get your? Uh, like, where did you guys? Where do you come from? to drumming? Well, uh, not not by accident. The, so I picked four drummers, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about all four. Yeah. But um, two of them kind of from the late '60s, early '70s, and two more from the '90s. And I think you know, uh, not that there wasn't. Um, a lot of great music that came out of the eighties, but in terms of rock and roll drumming for me, uh, growing up, I listened to a lot of my parents' record collections. So it was a lot of Led Zeppelin and cream and the Beatles and Motown. And, um, I remember making it through most of the eighties with the exception of maybe some of the early Metallica stuff that my babysitter turned me on to cause they weren't on the radio yet. Not really enjoying much of the music I heard on the radio because the, the drums weren't of the same kind of, intensity that I was used to hearing on like Zeppelin records and stuff right. like that. And then the nineties happened and it was a, it was a great time all of a sudden to be playing rock music and be in a rock band because there was a return to sort of the more, I guess some more aggressive, like grittier sound, a more honest drum sound, um, less sampling and sequencing, at least in the rock, you know, the rock realm. Sure. So, less gating too. Right. There was a, like during the eighties, every, all the drums were gated and all those hair metal guys had kick double kick drums, whether they needed them or not. It yeah. was all just ornamental. And like I said, there was some, <laughs> great, terrible, there's some great songs that were written during that time. It's just it, for whatever reason, it just didn't speak to me as much as the stuff that, that came to prominence in the early 90s. And so, yeah, two of the guys I picked are from late 60s, early 70s. Um, at least that's when they made most of their seminal recordings, mm-hmm. I guess. And then two guys from more from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Mike, what about you, man? Where, where are all your people coming from? I kind of just went in a general sense. Did you go everywhere? I went a little overboard, and I Mike came up just with top twenty. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it kind of was a mix of kind of the '90s rock influences mixed with kind of the the uh, like hard bop jazz guys, but also like early rock and roll guys. Mm-hmm. I think those were the three that I came up with areas. Cool. All right, so uh, who wants to go first, man? Well, I think I think since I've been on the podcast a bunch, and uh, and and Adam's obviously a you know regular contributing member. So, but uh, Mike, have you have you been on the Chunky Glasses podcast? I have not. Before? No, we, we just met. So actually, we should yeah. do like we should do like an intro for Mike. I think Mike yeah. Mike plays with 
People always give me grief for playing in too many bands, but Mike plays in all the bands that I don't play in. And, uh, and, uh, sometimes Mike's, we, yeah, these guys have the market corner. Mike, Mike, are you like looking over your shoulder like it's been going we, on? We both you guys, are, you yeah. guys should set it up so like you know you, you really have the market cornered. So if like if anybody wants to play with somebody like. You got to give one of these guys an envelope full of cash, like a handful oh, of twenties, Mike, Mike. You know, and then they'll fake a sprained ankle or something, and these guys will get the gig. You know, Mike's uh, Mike's one of my favorite favorite drummers in the area. Yeah. Uh, good friend. We we lived together for a while when we were both going to school in Maryland, and um, many basement uh, shedding. That's nights. right. And he's the first the first guy I call when I need a sub. Um, so anyway, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike. Yeah. Um, that's that's about it. I don't know. We we're both just doing the drumming thing. I'm playing as much as possible, uh, teaching, mm-hmm. trying to be inspired. I don't know. I could I could do a list of bands, but you know, too many to count. And uh, we can know. plug a few. Let's see. Well, I guess the you one play the, with the, the, who the, needs a pulse. Yeah, the main one right now is who needs a pulse, and we've we've got this new record that's basically finished, and we're now in the like what's going to be on the cover discussion like part of the production process or whatever Naked really important machine guns. yeah it's like well, is it aliens is it you know drug <laughs> paraphernalia it's like no uh so there's that group and then you know filling in here and there yeah i don't know uh can i do should i do my first pick yeah do yeah, your first ahead. pick yeah, first yeah. one man start it off all right so uh i'm going to go ahead i think fittingly uh because Joe Cocker just passed away. Yeah. Uh, one of, one of the guys that I really like was a drummer named Jim Gordon. Uh, you can hear him on this track, the letter, which we'll play here. Play mm-hmm. yeah. And he's double drumming, uh, with who's the other drummer, the famous LA guy, Jim, <laughs> Jeff, Jim Keltner. Jim yeah. Keltner, yeah. He's playing double drums with Jim Keltner. Uh, Jim Kellner's played with almost as many guys as you two. (laughs) (laughs) Way more. Way more. Uh, I saw him. Actually, I saw him play one. Where did you see him play? In San Francisco. I saw him do a... uh, He came in and just like parked and like... I was like... I think I was like 20 nothing. And he did a... He just came in, sat down. The drum set was waiting for him. He said, all right, what are we doing? And they said, it's just a standard rock thing. Okay, give me a click, and they gave him a click. He started playing, didn't even know the damn song, and then like about a minute and a half into it, they shut the click off, and about a minute and a half into it, the guy behind the the turned it back on, and it was still a metronome just in his head. All right, amazing. But that's Jim Keltner. Let's talk about. He's great. Well, yeah. I mean, he's he's very widely recognized. Yeah, yeah. you wouldn't heralded. say he was unsung. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so but so this guy, Jim Gordon, I had an interesting, th- uh, he, he played, I wrote a bunch of names down. Uh, let's see, Steely Dan, Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. Derek and the Dominoes. But I guess he, he, his career got sidelined because in like in the early eighties he had schizophrenia and he actually murdered his I was own mother say because he met Derek <laughs> and the Dominoes. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, yeah, yeah. he played on like bell bottom blues uh-huh. and, and right. like, and Layla, he was that guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, a shame. As a kid, though, it's it's funny to me because we lived in this. Uh, my dad was at stationed at this Air Force base mm-hmm. in California, and we would drive from like when you're in the military, you you get stationed somewhere, and they give you on base housing. But before you you're like on a waiting list, so you're there and you're like living off base, and you're waiting to get on base. So we lived in this off base apartment area and uh, on the way driving to school every day, we would pass this maximum security prison. <laughs> 
And little did I know, like driving past, it was all these signs like, you know, don't pick up hitchhikers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that's where he was. It's in oh, Vacaville, wow. California. Also, f- fittingly, it's where our <laughs> mutual favorite band is from. <laughs> um, Papa Roach. <laughs> oh, oh my. You guys don't really like Papa Roach. I'm not going to call them out or anything. It's a, it's a long-standing inside joke between yeah, you and Mike. I see. And it'll probably go on one of our headstones. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the track I picked was the letter. You can hear some... There's, like, a great drum breakdown at about three minutes where it's yeah. Keltner and, and uh, Jim Gordon. Let's, and let's the play a little of that course. then. We'll like, yeah. jump ahead. And, yeah. Yeah, that's a a good time to talk about. We'll start over. <laughs> good time to talk about something that I was actually just thinking about earlier. <laughs> he's, just, he's doing that on purpose. Yeah, he's talking with me now. Because um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a drummer uh, who who he, he himself did not have mental uh, health issues, but was associated with a, a somebody who's famously absent from the music scene for a long time due to mental health issues. Like the, um, I follow on Twitter, a woman, Maria Popova, who runs a, a website called brain pickings. And, uh, she, lots of really interesting articles. And one of them in particular in the past year about sort of the, the, the longstanding link or overlap between creativity and trailblazers in all areas of art, not just music and, you know, mental health problems. And how, you know, uh, the, the fine line between, you know, somebody who we call a creative genius is somebody who imagines or hears something that hasn't been done yet. Right. And then does it. And we call that person a visionary. And then another person's walking down the street and says, and looks up and sees, you know, Jesus in the clouds and we lock that person up. But there's oftentimes a a huge overlap between those two populations. And, uh, yeah, it is. We were talking while we were listening Mm -hmm. about how, um, it's really unfortunate that somebody like Jim Gordon didn't have access to the kind of kinds of medications and treatments that are available now. But then you got to yeah. rethink it. Like, would that have killed what made him good? Right? That's a very valid point. And I mean, no, seriously, think about yeah. it. Like, I mean, Bobby Fischer, Bobby Fischer, one of the most right. best chess player in the world, completely batshit crazy. Like, cannot talk. Well, he's dead now, but he couldn't like talk to people. <laughs> right. You know, um, no, Van Gogh. Van right. Gogh was the same way. Um, so that's that's the that's the trade off. Sometimes, man, you know, it's like. You know, you can help these people, but like, should you? 
you know? It, well, I, I think, I think nothing, <laughs> I think there's no amount of art in the world that would, that would be better than, than keeping a guy from killing his own mother because of being completely nuts. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed, man. Yeah. But the point is, is like, I mean, it's not, but then again, like it's not the job of the psychiatrist to find that balance. Like their job is to get you well, not well enough to the point where you can still be creative you know, yeah, there's a and lot like of Jim different Gordon opinions on this. Jim Gordon is probably on so much Thorazine. Like his, his blood is probably like 20% <laughs> at this point. Um, you know? I read Sean Colvin's memoirs recently, and she has battled, famously battled depression and is very open about it. And she says, you know, the whole thing about like the tortured genius thing, she's like, it's bullshit. She's like, when I was really, Absolutely. really depressed, I couldn't write songs. Right. So I think, uh, you know, I Nico think Case all, actually just came out. She wrote a whole album about it. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, the whole thing about tortured genius is like, there's some truth to it. Like what makes us sensitive, sensitive enough to write music that people can relate to mm-hmm. probably also makes us too sensitive to the world around us sometimes as artists. Um, but, but the idea that you have to be like tortured and like living in a, you know, cardboard box and, yeah. and uh, not able to relate to the world at all is, is what makes you an artist. I think that's right. unfortunate. But uh, would Nick Drake or Elliot Smith, would they be like pu- certified public accountants? You know what I mean? Maybe like they'd have gotten a hold of some quality Maybe. pharmaceuticals and some care. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. yeah. I'm with you, Ben. There's I'm no way. So, like, I'm just no, like, no, it's these are important you know. questions. Um, Mike, so with, with, with this song, like, you picked this, like, this is like, what year was this? Did this come out? 70, this early song. 70s? Early I'm 70s. I'm not sure. Stuff. Yeah. Do you guys is, know 73? Uh, Joe Cocker? Maybe even earlier than that. Yeah. How much? Well, he played Woodstock, and that was. Right. So that was before that. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. There's a, there's a, like you were saying, there's different sounds of different eras and stuff, but like that's a very like 70s sound, very keeping the beat. Like where, where did that come from? Was that just a scene like somebody like Keith Moon was just setting the pace? John Bonham was being like, you need to, this is how you need to do it. Or, uh, or I think Jim Gordon and Jim Keltner were both like known for being studio guys. And Mm -hmm. whereas, uh, Bonham and especially Keith Moon were known for, Doing what they do, doing what yeah. they, doing what they do live, <laughs> yeah, live. I and mean, especially like for the Who, for my money, like the only record really, really, really worth listening to is Live at Leeds because mm-hmm. they could never figure out how to get microphones close enough to Keith in the studio because he would knock them over, right? <laughs> um, but I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I, I, I think a well, lot of where? the the like pocket stuff comes from the fact that these were guys were primarily. I think the whole band was primarily studio guys. Because a lot of well, these Engle- so a lot of these English guys too are, are really going for the like the blues sound. They were like idolizing American blues, and so a lot of it's coming from that. But Gus, podcast number five. Yeah. <laughs> Gus Gus is never that friendly, except for when there's food, when there's yep. Tostitos on the table. Well, there's definitely like an export import thing with rock and roll. You know, get it out to England, and then those guys in England making stuff that's great, mm-hmm. bringing that back to the U.S. British invasion stuff. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. It's interesting that both Keith and, and Bonham or, you know, British guys and, uh, and that, uh, Keltner and, and, uh, Jim Gordon are kind of LA session greats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, but I don't know if that, I don't know if that matches though, because nobody there, I don't, I don't think there was at any point, you know, someone recording like a record, some singer songwriter recording a record in, in England who was thinking, you know, we really need to get Bonham in here. Or we really need to get Keith Moon in here because, like, those guys weren't. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. can't. But Keltner, you know, Keltner was like Keltner was playing like serial jingles and stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like straight up pocket session guys. You know, well, I, I want to say I could be totally talking out of my butt here, but I think I think Joe Cocker was kind of primarily a. I want to say he was like a session guy and was doing a lot of yeah. vocals. Yeah, well, a lot and of those guys, like Jimmy Page, bands. was a session guy. <laughs> yeah, sure. All like you know, just not, not just. Um, it's a drummer podcast, but you're talking about like a whole band and a lot of these. And, yeah. 
And yeah, so I mean, is there? I guess in you guys' mind, is there a difference between a session guy and then the live guy? Sure, well, not yeah, always. But like, but they, but then again, they both serve like their own purposes, and they're both doing things that are completely right. admirable within their own. Like, I'm never going to look down on a on a session guy, mm-hmm. you know, and just like I'm not going to look down on someone who who's just like just completely comes alive right. in a live environment, you know, because well, because you named off a bunch of the bands that he had played in, and that's a, that's a wide range. Yeah. Like that's a pretty utilitarian, like not just knowing your instrument, knowing like the 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 groove that people are going for because it's the bass. But like, they almost the seem like different neighborhoods. The they almost seem like completely different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Like when you know, uh, a session guy is is a guy who just, I mean, he he can bring his own sort of touch to things, but not often, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody like Keith Moon, can, who in their right mind would bring Keith Moon in on a session? I would, you know. I would love to do that. <laughs> I don't know. I think would be so much more interesting. Yeah. I think we're talking about two different things. I think the, you know, the, the risk associated with a live show is like, and, and plus the performance factor, you got two things going on here. Like when you put on a show, you're putting on a show yeah. and Keith Moon's whole, whole thing was, you know, in a movie, nobody wants to see somebody smoking a cigarette. Like, yeah, you know, they want to see like, Right. You know, like hand around behind the head and like exactly. they want to see a performance. And that was Keith's thing. And if you Wait, watch like any what? videos, do you watch any the I ripped that off from a friend of mine, Steve Brigida. He he was a huge Keith Moon fan. Um and the other thing is that the risk in making a record is monumental and like in terms of like, you know, if somebody like drops the beat at a show, there's gonna be another song. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but if you yeah. drop the beat in a session, that's money. And so um, you know, I think the risks associated are different. However, when you listen back to like Bonham's first track that was mm-hmm. released in the United States, the first track on the first Led Zeppelin record and you hear what he was doing with his right foot, anybody that had done that in the studio prior to that probably would have gotten fired, right. but he did it. And that record sold millions. And so suddenly so that door, those doors were blown open for any drummer that, that wanted to do that if it was the right thing to do for the song. So I don't know. I think there's, yes, they are two different neighborhoods. They have been in my experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't quite approach approach, the studio thing the same way I approach the live thing. Right. But if I approach the studio thing with too much of like a, like a regimented, regimented, like sterile approach, and I don't have any of the energy that I bring live, then I don't make good recordings. So there's, there's always some overlap too. I think people tend to, you know, define people in the most simple way possible. Like Jim Gordon, Jim Keltner, studio guys, but yeah, Jim Keltner wasn't Jim Keltner double drumming with Ringo on the on the uh, the what's it concert for Bangladesh? Yeah, I mean, so yeah. how many live gigs? You know, people just define you very simply. Well, because it's it's easier to understand. Yeah, it's easier to package. But if sure. Jim Gordon was playing live with Zappa and playing, he did all these Mad Dogs t- and Englishman tours. Like, did he's, did Gordon play with Zappa? Wow, that's that's what it, you it. know according to Wikipedia. Yeah, he also played on Pretzel Logic, the Steely Dan, Dan record. Yeah. It's my favorite Steely Dan record, and you know tons of stuff. So people, it's like I don't know if you experienced this, Ben, but for me, in in the career like locally that I've had, people kind of heard me play, and then you know I was doing a lot of jazz stuff, and then I started playing with rock bands, oh, and they're yeah. like, "Oh, well, he's a jazz guy. Sure. You're, you're you're playing a rock band, but you're a jazz guy." And then now people come up to me and they're like, man, you're such a rocker. Right. It's like, well, now I'm not, you know, I'm just like, okay, thank you. You're just but, sort of bringing right. what Yeah, I'm bringing what's appropriate for right. that, mm-hmm. you know, thing. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's true with like a lot of these guys. They weren't just, you know, session guy or rock guy. A lot of these guys had, you know, some of these guys were in the military and had like, they could play the timpani, you know, like Elvin Jones was, was could play timpani and, mm. 
and Steve uh, Gad got to start playing in March. Right, all this stuff. Yeah. So you know, it's it's just a matter of what's the first line on your Wikipedia page. I think. Right. Let's and, move on to the uh, the next one, man. All right. Who wants to go next? I'll go. All right. All right. What so uh, the guy, uh, the first guy on my list would be uh, uh, Yuval Gabay. Um, he was uh, the drummer for Soul Coughing and the, the funkiest man on the planet, absolutely the funkiest man on the planet. And he had really great time and really great touch. Um, it's kind of unfortunate because Dodie like hates all those guys. Yeah. They yeah. don't even. And like, to be fair, the rest of the guys in the band were pretty shitty to Dodie. Um, they were kind of like, hey, poetry guy, where's your beret? Well, they were, you know, I mean, the way, there's two sides to every story, but, but they were pat- in like Mike's the, book, he, he talks about all the guys in the band basically he wrote a book? trying yeah. to, yeah, mm-hmm. it's yeah. really good. And they were shitting on The him. book of drugs. They were shitting Is that what it's called? That's really? what it's called. <laughs> they were, they it's were an amazing read. On him. Yeah. Uh, they were absolutely shitting on him. They treated, and like, and that's kind of not, I don't, I don't think they realized what they had in Dodie, because if right. you listen to any of Dodie's solo albums, they're all really amazing, and he's got a really unique voice. But Soul Coughing was, Probably the most unique band of the '90s, if not. Of, of, when did their first album come out? Because uh, yeah, it, it 1990, was uh, uh, 1990. Ruby Vroom was Ruby 91, Vroom like 1991, 91 so. or so. Yeah, yeah because and, it was like you hear it, and all of a sudden you're like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, exactly. Shit? And, like, and another another reason I love um, um, Yuval Gabay is because I mean he was, uh, you know, he had to be solid to the point where those all those. Um, Samples mm-hmm. that uh, Digley Anthony was coming up with were were matching, and it's so easy to rush and get back and right. and fuck up. And he never did, you know. Yeah. Um, in his book, Mike talks about how like he was he found Yuval because he was asking around in New York for a drummer who could sound like a loop. Yeah, and he did, and this guy absolutely could. But he had mm-hmm. now the song I chose. It's it's called Disseminated, and it's kind of an atypical soul coughing song in that it's not really a um, it's not really a a, a straight funk groove. It's more like a kind of, it's weird. It's like a jazz hands yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it works perfectly. <laughs> That's a really good description. Yeah. Cause the eighth, uh, like, and, and he's just doing, he's doing this great thing. It's asymmetrical. He's, uh, he starts off playing, uh, uh, you know, hi hats, uh, just a hi hat on the eighth, uh, um, just single eighth notes. And, um, uh, he only hits the snare drum on the four doing a bunch of shuffling. Um, a lot of great touch there. And the kick drum is just this great thing. Um, so this is almost atypical of what um, Yuval Gabay is capable of, but I think it's it's great, and then it shows these absolutely versatile, and it's just a great song. Right, let's so. check it out then. You know, this is disseminated. Yeah, so confident. And ever since then I got disseminated. And ever since then I got disseminated. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The truth of the moon I got disseminated. The truth of the moon I got disseminated. The truth of the moon I got disseminated. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy.
Yeah, so like I was saying, like how much of that was that's all live and, and sampling? And that's stuff. all live. I think there was. I think I think they did a little bit more looping on El Oso, which was their their last album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the first two albums, they did Ruby Vroom and, and Irresistible Bliss. I mean, that was that was him. Yeah, but I, you have to remember the the context, the historical context. Nineteen ninety four. It just wasn't that easy to loop stuff. Yeah. Back then. No, we, no. But that's what I was going to say. Is like as you were rolled on to the nineties, and especially now. I mean, now there's a whole. That's. 90% of like indie I mean, rock considering the limitations of the technology at the time those guys was, had to work their asses off to get it to sound like that how, how do you guys as drummers consider people who are really adept at looping I think it's really interesting um, I've played uh, a little bit with Margot McDonald who's known for yeah. using a loop station a loop station Alan and Kyan building in like a drum drummer, machine really in sequencing I, yeah I played like with her a little bit and it's it's really challenging you have to listen um, because as far as we've come with listening uh, with looping rather um, unfortunately you know 120 beats per minute on a loop station doesn't always work out to be exactly 120 beats per minute on, an, on a metronome those things can still yeah not because they're on different they mathematical can out. yeah, yeah. They, exactly so um but uh, it's it's really fun challenge. I've, I've played with tracks with bands like Lowercase Letters, mm-hmm. for example, and I really actually enjoy it. Um, but it's a very different challenge, you know, from the just the freedom of just having being able to do what you, whatever you want. Would you consider somebody who uh, mainly does that? Would you, would you still consider them a drummer or more like a percussionist? Well, I love blurring those lines. Okay, I mean, like my main yeah. gig right now with the Coward Squire, I'm a I'm a percussionist, right? I don't. I show up to gigs and I don't even have to have a set list because I don't have to worry about tempo or starting the songs. I have to worry about tempo once the song starts. But mm-hmm. it's a very different set of responsibilities. But if you're the only person hitting stuff, you know, in the back, then yeah. Um, depending on the group, you know, you can take on the role of a percussionist. First, I've seen Mike play gigs where, like with Justin Jones, where there's a very pointed approach of, of trying to avoid just taking the traditional drummer route and trying to really think more like a percussionist. And I think yeah. it's really refreshing to see and to listen to. Yeah. So. Very cool. Uh, I'm really, really glad you, you wanted to do Yuval. Oh, he, yeah. he would have been one of my picks for sure. He's, and I, he's just the greatest. I hope that everybody that listens to this podcast tells everybody they know about him because he's, he's fantastic. And, and he's not, and he hasn't, the real shame of it is he hasn't really done anything since, and which I think that's, is just that's my next question. Like, it's insane. I mean, that, I mean, I, who knows? Maybe like his, his style is kind of out, you know, out now, hmm. uh, you know, but, oh, um, I, I, I can't imagine that this guy isn't like first call everywhere. Well, you know? you know, everybody's got different motivations for playing. I think the way Mike describes the the record deals that were and the the songwriting deals, they that, kind that of bored their way into getting songwriting credit, from what I understand. Of yes, and, and so I think you've all set pretty nicely with the record sales from the first two or three right. albums. Um, I would piggyback on on Adams uh, using this tune disseminated and say. Um, I think every almost everything on Ruby Vroom, the first album, is amazing. Um, the uh, when the drums come in on, uh, well, the drums start out the track "Mr. Bitterness," which is is not my favorite song of theirs, but the drum track mm-hmm. at the beginning "Mr. Bitterness" is just. Yeah. I've been trying to. I ripped it off for a Mudray tune. I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> um, and uh, he's going to horn his way into songwriting credit not. on that. Yeah. Too. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't. Yeah, but no, that's uh, another interesting thing about um, screenwriters blues when the yeah, drums come in on that. Yeah, or it's th- th- that's like it's like auditory heroin. It's just yeah. as soon as his drums come in, you're and, just like, oh, time and, slows down. And that's like, another interesting thing about him is he he was he was kind of. Uh, he was not afraid to just turn off the snares on that snare drum mm-hmm. and just let you get that good kind of like dead snare uh, mm-hmm. kind of gongy gongy sound tom sound out of it and it would just work perfectly yeah you know um yeah he's he was absolutely amazing and i'd, I'd like to think that he can 
because I don't think I don't think they sold that many records, man. I don't think he's sitting pretty in terms of his songwriting deals and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? 90s were weird. You huh? can sell a lot of records to yeah. smaller stuff. But oh, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully, he's, I'm, I'm I'm sure he's working steadily at the very least. You know, but the last time I, I and this is how long it's been since I was curious. But the last time I was trying to find out what he was doing, I found his MySpace page. Yeah, Ooh, and he was playing. He that was dates playing with him. yeah. Well, I mean that that says when I was looking. I don't know that what he's doing now because I I didn't uh, do any research. But I think he was playing with some group overseas somewhere in Europe or in. Uh, in the Middle East. I the last know. time I saw him, it was on YouTube, and it he, it might as I think it was with the chick who did like the Good Vibrations vocal in that CNC Music Factory thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was just trifling. I was like, oh god, man, come on, come on. Well, you everyone know? go Money. buy all their records. <laughs> Money. Just uh, did you guys ever listen to Mike Doty's After Soul Coffee? A little bit. Stuff? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. no, no. I enjoyed that. I like Haughty, Haughty Melodic's a great album. Yeah. We, uh, we actually delicious. we actually tried to get Mike on the uh, podcast. Yeah. Did oh, not yeah. respond. He's not hard to talk. He's not easy <laughs> to talk to. Call him out on Twitter. What do you, how, uh, you, how are you approaching well, I, that? I <laughs> actually know somebody who's friends with him, so. Oh, well. He's, well, he's, he's, my I fault. mean, yeah, he's, he's really unique, and I'm, I'm sorry he feels that he got a pretty shit deal out of it. But um, well, then again, when you think, but when you think about it, I mean, those songs on their own, if they weren't run through the, the soul coughing mm-hmm. Kind of mix. I mean, I don't think they would have gotten anywhere near, you know, as as popular as they well, are. I think Soul Coffee is a good example. And this this is a great, I think, example of an unsung drummer. Is like you can write good songs. Like I, I personally don't think he's like a great great songwriter. He's mm-hmm. a good songwriter. But without that, without these components in it, like there, there are bands that are 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 just one person and you have a good backup, and then right. there are bands that are. Bands and the, the music and the, the music doesn't work. Crucial, yeah, yeah. Without without all that, well, and yeah, I, you know, if you read Mike's book, um, he would he would contend that he had a concept for the way he wanted the band to sound, and he found guys yeah. that, that fit those roles. That still doesn't discount Yuval's contributions. I right. just I think what's remarkable about Soul Coughing is we all have heard so many stories about bands that fell apart because of the record label. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bands that just were working their asses off and the chemistry was good and they were trying and the record label just didn't know how to market their album or just shelved it for whatever reason. Soul Coughing is the only band I've ever read about where there was a band that should have broken up within the months of their first gig that was kept together by the record label. Right. <laughs> right. Because they hated each other. Doty yeah. writes about just riding in the front of the van with the driver just to just to be away from just to get those extra yeah. six feet from the rest of the band that he could not stand because the the animosity was so Jesus. thick you know then the record label was like look we take risks on weird bands like you guys all the time and you guys are actually making money you are not breaking up right so that's they sent out they sent unique. Dodie to like a psychiatrist to be like to be like here like you listen we're gonna send you to a psychiatrist maybe they can get you on some Maybe they can get you on some Prozac and everything will be fine. And you yeah. want to be in the band. And like Dodie actually went to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was like, look, man, for your sanity, you need to leave this fucking band. You know, yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. It's weird looking at them because they all worked really well together. It was this perfect thing and it was so unique and there wasn't anything that sounded like them. But, yeah. man, it, it, it's, it's just like watching a watching a really shitty horrible marriage or something you know it's more like watching a fight yeah like mm-hmm. I, yeah. I mean when you listen to like the bootlegs that are available now like there's a i think live from the 930 club in 1994 yeah yeah that's just incredible and and until i read the his book i don't think i had a full understanding but he sounds so angry yeah yeah everybody on stage just sounds so angry and it's great because of that and then yeah. you read his book and you realize it's cuz life off stage was so difficult for them and so like 
conflicted and there was so much animosity. Like that was the only way they were going to sound. They didn't take him seriously. That's I think that's one crucial thing. They did, I don't think they took him seriously at all. They thought he was just this dumb beret wearing poetry guy who, who could <laughs> and he, he could do like let's let's be honest. There aren't any real sizzling Mike Doty guitar riffs. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Uh, like circles. Come on. <laughs> like <laughs> in Chicago. Yeah. Or is not Chicago. Blue Eyed Devil. I mean, they're basic, but but it's compelling. Yeah. But can you primarily understand from their point of view where they were like, who's this guy was the doorman at the fucking knitting factory. Their values were different than his. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, just as memorable as all the beats that you've all plays on those records is like I can. And and Mike Doty's lyrics are not formulaic. They're not like I I mean, I've I've listened to Ruby Broom so much. That it's part of my DNA, yeah. and I can recite the lyrics to all those songs along with the record, like you know, and I love it. And so I think it, you know, I think I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think yeah. all the guys in those in that band made significant contributions. It's un- unfortunate that they they didn't uh, understand each other very well, and yeah. it's it's almost in a weird way fortunate for us that the record label did keep them together long enough to make three albums because we have three albums to listen to. Yeah, exactly. But if the first album was the only thing they'd ever done, I still would think that you've is a fantastic drummer. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. All right, well, so, good pick, Adam. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. All right, what you got, dude? What you got, Tufts? Well, I'm going to pick another guy from the, I guess, from the 90s uh, <laughs> for my first first pick. Um, I think it's, you know, we were just talking about how it's important not to pigeonhole people. I mean, any of us would be fortunate enough to have the kind of notoriety as any of these guys, even though we claim they're unsung drummers and, like, all these guys are probably still working. Mm-hmm. I know that Jay Lane's still working, and that's who I picked for <laughs> for one of my uh, one of my guys. Um I went to Lollapalooza one year and on the side stage was the Charlie Hunter trio. And as confusing as it was to look around for the bass player on the stage, because Charlie Hunter was playing right. an eight string guitar that contained bass strings and guitar strings. Yep. And he was covering the bass lines and the guitar parts at the same point. Um, I remember being really wowed by the drummer. And so um, being a, a impressionable, young, impressionable high school kid, I had, I had $20 cash on me and i could either afford the cd or the t-shirt wait which Lollapalooza was this uh 92 93 i don't remember which one they played no 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 it was later than that yeah it was uh, 94 the the, the trio rolled out it might have even been later than that yeah it was he got 94 who was the headliner like got big on the 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 hippie scene the eventually jam 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 scene yeah (laughs) yeah it was an oddity there's nowhere it was like right Three ring circus is nowhere to put it. But him. you would have him and like Galactic and like maybe, uh, yeah. uh, is it, uh, the duo, Mark, Joe Russo, Mark Benefit? Yeah, or Medeski Martin Wood that eventually yeah. was really right. big on the jam band scene. Um, but here's, here's my thing about Jay Lane is that, so, so I remember being really wowed by the drummer and, uh, I knew that I would be able to find the CD at Tower Records, but I didn't think I'd be able to find the t shirt again. So I bought the t shirt. Nice. Uh, which was a picture of a, it was this really trippy picture of a, of a kid with chicken legs. <laughs> and the torso was a kid and he was holding a bowl of soup like the please sir can i have some more kid that was the, on the t-shirt that's how weird these guys were and i just remember being really impressed and so um <laughs> i went out and bought the uh the 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 record bing 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 which was in cd stores at that time and then i found out there was one before that mm-hmm. the the self-titled record that actually les claypool from primus produced yep and um and so anyway the the track that i picked was is is bullethead mostly for the drum solo and i'm not even a big drum solo guy but i think the ensemble figures on this are just incredible he's such a tight player all right um, well let's check it out yeah. 
pitch and drum solo. Yeah, pitch and it is. Um, so the, my thing about Jay Lane, and we were talking about this a little bit about people being uh, pigeonholed, is that um, you know the first time I heard Jay play was was uh, on that Charlie Hunter record. And then I did a little bit of research, which back then you couldn't do on the internet. So it was more about just picking up copies of Spin and, and finding, like, reading in liner notes that uh, that uh, it was no by no mistake that Les Claypool from Primus had produced the first Charlie Hunter Trio record. That that uh, mm-hmm. actually Jay Lane was the drummer for one of the first incarnations of Primus. And after Primus kind of started uh, achieving more fame, there was a sort of a uh, some downtime where Primus wasn't working and Les got back together with Todd Huth and Jay Lane mm-hmm. for, for an, an earlier incarnation of Primus and, and recorded um, a whole record as a band called Sausage. And and that record is much more like weird prog rock, the kind it's of stuff you'd record. expect from Les Claypool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jay's playing on there is so, so, so good. Um, and so probably, just the beginning of Prelude to Fear, I think is such a cool example of like groove playing as opposed to you know more improvisational like jazz playing right Great artist. You guys know so, Simon Cowell. Like Simon, the one Simon, the one record Simon Cowell produced um, that was a hit was um, a record featuring a bunch of professional wrestlers singing songs from like the sixties. <laughs> I've got to hear that. Yeah. Do you sold, have sold it? millions so, of copies? Anyway, so, <laughs> but so that was Simon Cowell's experience. So Jay Lane eventually went on to play with uh, Bob Weir's post Grateful Dead group, the uh, Rat Dog. Rat Dog. And then uh, and then he was a, he was and I think. After a stint rejoining Primus again, mm-hmm. uh, he w- he's now the drummer for Further, which is Bob Weir and Phil Lesh's. Yeah, which actually just yeah. wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is Further No More. Oh, wow. Ah. Okay. So, so Jay's, Jay's fantastic. And unless you're from, like, California, you probably haven't heard of him, and you should. I think he's fantastic. Very cool. Mike, back around to you. Oh, man. Oh, no, I wasn't ready. <laughs> um, let's <laughs> see. I'll go, with another, I'll go with another fun one. Everybody watch the... The uh, what is it, Sesame Street? Growing up, oh yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody knows Animal. A lot of people, maybe if you weren't around for the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, you grew up watching Animal bite his cymbals. But not a lot of people know the real drummer's name, and I don't know a lot about him. But Ronnie Varell was, a, I guess, an English drummer, and he landed the gig. Awesome. Be an animal. Oh no, uh, no be shit. Be awesome. an animal. And so all those Buddy Rich, you know, animal like the mm-hmm. famous one. Yeah, I show all my battles. students the drum battle. Uh, that's like a guy off stage. It's just this dude, Ronnie Varell. <laughs> wow. Uh, so this clip is um, is uh, Harry Belafonte coming on, and if you yeah, you can find it on YouTube, it's he's playing this kind of kettle drum sized drum that's got a furry skin over it, and he's playing with these wild mallets. And so Animal and uh, Harry Belafonte are nice. are uh, are doing a battle. What's interesting too is like the the rhythmic kind of thing that Harry Belafonte's doing. He's got swing in his playing. He's a totally untrained drummer. He's got kind of an African call and response type of vocabulary that I really like. So anyway, we can check this out. Yeah.
you show this to your students. Yeah. Correct? Uh, would that be mean that Animal is considered an underrated drummer? <laughs> well, Animal is, I would say he's he's very heralded. As real as... Well, I mean, he's he's heralded. Well, does that mean Animal? Uh, I don't know. People walk around with Animal t-shirts. You yeah. know, I'm at Target. I you know. Yeah. Uh, but you don't see Ronnie Varel's stamp on there anywhere. No. But in a way, it's almost like the Dread Pirate Roberts, right? Animal <laughs> is a refillable... Mythological character, exactly. Right. That, well, and, that, and that's my point. Is like that's this fun. was a, like, this was a symbol. Was, Henson was all about like education. That was yeah. a big thing. And you have this symbol of, you know, you plugged a bunch of drummers in there. And you well, know. You, you know who Animal was patterned after, though. Mm-mm. Keith Moon. Keith Moon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's. All, I, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about this. Uh, this archetype of the drummer as the as the toothless Neanderthal like that does eat drums me. that does chain they used have to chain him up so he doesn't go you know well whatever I mean when it comes down to it like there's a reason that people come to shows to rock and roll shows and then you know a lot of like the drummers might not always be the first name that that comes up when people talk about their favorite bands but when people come to shows they watch the drummer because they want it because it's something to watch i would argue also there's a visceral connection well it's also also, i would argue argue also that they they're listening to the drummer mm -hmm. you know the drummer is the sun that the rest the rest of the 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 planet's Kind of revolve around, man. Well, it's something that we've talked as much shit as I you like want. that one. Yeah, well, it's good. You want to write that down? Nothing. It's not the gravity. If you don't have the gravity of the sun, you're all just spinning off mm-hmm. into the universe. And it's something we've talked about, Ben, on this podcast actually about how drums are the bass. They're older than all this other components. Uh, yeah. yeah, we did discuss, and I think that was for uh, when uh, you get down to Square. square yeah. yeah. Aside from that, when was the last time you went into a coffee house where a dude was? Singing some song about his girlfriend on his weeping into his acoustic guitar. <laughs> you, you were really there. You were there on Tuesday ass. with his beret. <laughs> yeah, with yeah. his fucking beret. No one's, no one's, no one's getting laid to that. No one's right. dancing to that. That's bullshit. Wait, man. beret guy will. Beret guy will. <laughs> yes, but, but like you know, but sorry. it won't be any good. But no. like, if I want to go like move my ass, Weepy. I'm not, I'm not going to go <laughs> listen to a guy cover the "Time of Your Life" by fucking Green Day on right. his acoustic guitar. No, I'm going to go see like some funk. You know, I'm going to shake my ass and you don't get that if you don't have a drummer. That's simple. So people can people can talk about like the toothless bearded Neanderthal who doesn't know how to read music, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm we're we're drummers, the most important part of any successful band. Yeah, there's there's a that's simple a thing that circulates on Facebook and Instagram every, every once in a while that's like the band's only as good as their drummer. Seriously. Which mm-hmm. which you know, as a drummer saying that it's like, oh, of course he's going to say that. But but I go out and see a lot of live music too and I think And if you the know, drummer doesn't have it, if the drummer isn't isn't there, then well, yeah, it doesn't so matter how good the rest the of the band is. The saying is like great singer, great uh, you know, it, instrumentalist like guitars and stuff, but mediocre drummer, you got a medium mediocre band. Yeah, exactly. But mediocre band, great drummer, you got great, great band. band. I can think of a million mediocre bands. And I would Blink almost 182. make Blink-182. Blink-182. You know? Well, they're a special case. There's punk pop, simplicity, you know, with their writing. They're not, you know, there's no complexity there. They're but the, it's, it's fun to listen to because you know? the drummer sure. is killing it. Yeah. Travis is even there, Even the drummer it. before Travis was killing it. He was uh, the whatever that guy's name. You know, there was he, a drummer before Travis. There yeah, was, yeah, on their one, their first hit. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. Well, the, they, it wasn't Travis. It was some other guy. But like you know, that and, and then should I'll, we go like, down the Blink One Eighty Two rabbit hole now? No, I'm just saying <laughs> that made no. that made like that that drummer made their booger eating nonsense. <laughs> um, you know, like I could tolerate uh, it. Like, yeah. Hey, we're young and wacky. Yeah, but they had well, a fucking killer drummer, man. You know, the, the slight, slightly more. Uh, 
cerebral explanation that I like to use, although I appreciate everything you've said, Adam, because I think that is it. It's the visceral thing. The visceral connection is that, you know, the, 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 uh, advent of the singer songwriter is relatively new. Mm -hmm. Those two things used to be separate. And if you go back far enough with like Tin Pan Alley and, and, you know, the American musical and whatever, but so like the idea of, why, why do you say that? Well, there was like Woody Guthrie. Yes. Folk, folk folks. What do you you mean by new? Um, The idea that somebody could write their own songs and perform them and become successful and be known for both. And, and that sort of intimate connection with like, Oh, the person who wrote this is also the person who's singing. As opposed to just like on that live at Leeds record, they're singing other people's songs. It's like the first couple tracks. He's like, this one's a song that yes. they yeah. did it. Now we're going to mm-hmm. do it. Which was really commonplace, you know, and yeah. even, even into the sixties for relatively successful bands, like the Rolling Stones to do covers of like Motown and Stax tunes. That's that was true. still very much acceptable. But, you know, you get into, into the late sixties and the early seventies and like, people don't want to hear that anymore. They want to hear a band play their well, own songs. And it was also the, unless you're in DC where they only want to hear cover bands, well, but, <laughs> but, the, but, but group drumming and drumming in general, what is that, uh, and, and, and yeah, that's another Fountains podcast. of Wayne song. Yeah. Well, I mean, band, Stacey's bands mom, Stacey's a lot mom. of bands back there served different purposes too. They were playing a dance. Sure. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily to be like, we are the rock. I mean, the rock well, that's star. Always gonna, that's always going to happen. I mean, right. we've all done gigs where we're, we're yeah. just there for people to dance to. Yeah. But, but the, the, the whole thing of group drumming, days. group drumming has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think when we, when we spoke about that, we were talking about the Coward's Choir and how yeah. there's two drummers in that band. So yeah. like, why are people attracted to that? Well, I think that's a much older tradition yeah. than the singer songwriter tradition. I'm with you. All right. All right I think that might be. We have like tons of unsung. Okay. Yeah, we do. We do. Adam. All right. So I guess uh, if, if we're going to go ahead and do a whole track, and uh, I'm, I'm choosing a guy named Todd Trainer, mm-hmm. uh, who was in a drummer for a band called Shellac. Okay, and uh, he's from Minneapolis, and Shellac is um, Steve Albini's band, um, and you know we all know Steve Albini as a producer, mm-hmm. uh, and. There are a lot of reasons why I really admire the shit out of Todd Trainer. Um, if you've ever seen him play, he has this little, like, typical four four piece set. Um, it's kind of small. Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly small, and he is taking advantage of. Um, I don't know. It's uh, Albini's production style. Uh, we all know Albini's drum sound, right? He's done PJ Harvey. He's done the Pixies. He's done Nirvana. He's done uh, like everybody you like, um, and his production style is very much on the attack side of things. Like when you're listening to it, you, you hear that stick yeah. hitting the rim, like hitting, hitting this, uh, like a crunch of a chip. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, no, it's like someone taking a baseball bat to a rack of ribs in a freezer is what it sounds yeah. like. You know, and that's, well, that's, I mean, that's like Steve Albini's drum sound. But the point is, is once you're doing that, there's nowhere to hide. You know, and particularly yeah. with Shellac, which is a trio, it's and, just guitar, and, bass, and, and Big drums. Black. Yeah, like, well, like, Big Black was a drum machine. Yeah, and another one thing I do want to mention about that. I mean, you'd think that like being a drummer, I was all anti drum machine, but I loved the way Steve Albini used a drum. Well, machine that's what I was Black. asking earlier. Like, Didn't bother me yeah. because it's like, about the composition. Well, it was about the composition, yeah. but also what I really liked about Big Black was that um, all the drum machines that were being used at the time, because this was like '86, '87. All these British uh, British synth pop bands who were like trying, and all the hip hop guys were doing everything they could to make that drum machine sound real. And Big Black were like, "Fuck it, it's a drum machine, right? And we're going to make it as repetitive and and like up your ass as we possibly can." And um, and I think Albini has taken that drum sound from Roland. I think if, if Albini wanted to make a million bucks, he could take 
the Roland drum machine that he used from from Big Black yeah. and just put it on eBay. That 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 oh, is yeah. a fucking yeah. artifact that needs to be in the Rock but and Roll know, Hall of Fame or something. Steve Albini would never do that. No, he probably would. <laughs> no, he yeah, would. he's no. I mean, he's a dick, but he's a completely <laughs> uh, sell it for a used price. He's, he's like, a right. I bought it for two hundred. I'll sell it for so one fifty. The, drum, yeah. but the drummer, the drummer I'm talking about is like Todd Trainer <laughs> is amazing, and he like he, you know, and if if it's all attack. There, there isn't room for you to hide. You know, if there's a lot of reverb and a lot of like, right. you know, a lot of like gating and shit, there's plenty of room for you to hide your flaws as a drummer. There's none when it's a trio and, and the production sound is nothing but, you know, a baseball yeah. bat against a side of ribs. So, yeah. um, uh, so the track is, uh, what? Crow? Like a side of ribs. <laughs> I don't know. I'll be using the So this yeah. is Crow. Cool. Adam, I got one question. Huh. Is, is that how you feel when uh, listening to Future Islands? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, a little bit. Oh, I just, I mean, I, for the hundredth time. No, no, we don't have to explain. The only problem I have no, with no, Future no, Islands no, no, is the I'm sorry, I'm sorry, open the bottle. All right. All right. Oh, so it's not like a personal <laughs> issue that you have with him. He touched my butthole, man. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> because the reason you say that is... Uh, I actually thought about doing his drummer as one of these drummers because really? I've been, I've been no, again, a fan. Again, it has nothing to do with the band. Nothing to do with I'm gonna the band. I'm going to shout him out. Nothing to do with the band. Yeah. All the singer. The this singer this guy's name was, his name's Mike Lowry, and he was in a band called uh, Lake Trout yep. and sure. Big hey, in Japan. Mike's in Future Islands? He is He is now, right? Future, the band from Baltimore, that's who we're talking yeah, yeah. about? Right, yeah. No shit. And uh, back when I was in college, I heard Big in Japan at some bar. Yeah live and it blew me away and they you know Lake Trout went on to open up for Flaming Lips yeah. and worked, they, with, worked with Uncle they used to play Richmond uh, at Alley Cats like, yeah. repeatedly like three nights great, and his great drummer amazing amazing drummer not mechanical at all yet could do he wasn't like playing with clicks but he sounded like yeah. something borrowed from you know a, a electronic music yeah. but I decided not to I don't know why no. good, good thing I didn't <laughs> right. it would have been 
Unless we wanted to talk about that. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to say, no, I, I think that description is, is what you're saying, like hitting the rack of ribs with the baseball bat. Right. Like that aggressive thing. And it also gets more into like how, like that particular sound like sets me on edge. The thing is, when I say that... It In a good way. Him, when, when I say that, I'm, it makes it, it mistakenly makes him sound like he's a lunkhead, but he's not. Mm. I mean, like the stuff Shellac doing, it's like... Um, it's like, have you ever been to one of those like Blue Angel air shows? <laughs> yeah, mm. it's like it's like one of those. Shellac is like one of those, except instead of like jets, they're just these big ass cargo planes. You know, doing <laughs> doing like Blue Angel style air show. That's what Shellac wow. sounds like. Yeah. There should and be like, a band name in that. Yeah, somewhere. and so so um, big ass cargo planes. Shellac is uh, like and, and Todd Trainer like just rhythmically in terms of like where the time is and the stuff that he's doing. I mean, he's a really fucking amazing drummer. And, yeah, um, it's like minimalism. It's, it's minimalism, minimalism, but, but and it, it plays to like because some music is. Needs to be angry, yeah. Because sometimes people are angry. That's and a, it's Steve a reflection of this, and this is right, like happy, happy jam. Right, right. But that that's happy. very visceral, very like, oh shit, some I might fight somebody. It's, yeah, it's kind of the but you know conceptually, it's kind of the polar opposite of somebody like Keith Moon, where it was just like he was all over the place, hitting every mm-hmm. drum and every cymbal. Where you listen to Trainer on that track, and like there's some real poetry in just how he just doesn't leave the groove. Right, right. You can still tell it's a human being, but it's so precise, right. and so there's so much like. Intent, and that's why I said it ma- eventually it makes you start to feel a little uncomfortable, or at least me, because yes, you're just like you want to release, you're like, and you're not getting just, it. No, come on, man, come <laughs> no, on. The thing is, is he sticks, and particularly with that track in particular, he sticks with it. Um, and then when he when he throws in um, just something as simple as a cymbal crash, or does right. that kind of sh- seamless shift into straight four time mm. um, from that kind of six eight tom oriented time that they're they're starting it out with. It's like a release. It's like, oh shit, oh my god, I'm free now, you know. Yeah. And it just works perfectly. I mean, that, that yeah. guy's a really amazing drummer. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't. And what what I also love about him is he's still like, he's like a warehouse manager in Minneapolis, <laughs> and he's not going to stop. He's like, why would I stop being a warehouse manager in Minneapolis? I mean, that's like, <laughs> I love being a warehouse manager in Minneapolis. You know, they're nice. <laughs> that's it, funny. Yeah, it's still an awesome drummer though. He's one of my favorites. Completely unsung. Cool. Ben. I want to talk about Kenny Jones. All right. Um, and let's, let's do that. You know, when we were talking about putting together this podcast, which we've been talking to, talking about for like the better part of a year, and I'm yeah. really glad yeah. we could finally do it. Um, we didn't really clearly define what an unsung drummer was. And we've, we've definitely picked some folks who play for bands we might consider kind of obscure. But another th- thing that I want to do with, with podcast with a podcast like this or with with drumming for the song the the drum set clinic series yeah mike and i have done a bunch is like trying to just bring a greater level of awareness to people who aren't drummers or maybe even aren't musicians about what drummers do right and kenny jones is a perfect example of of a guy who's played with some really important bands that um he's not a household name at all Mm -mm. um but but what a fantastic drummer the first guy that the who called uh when when keith moon died so if that doesn't say something about Somebody's playing, right. uh, you know, I don't know what does, but, um, I wanted to pick Kenny for two reasons, the small faces and faces. Yeah. <laughs> um, two bands, which contained a lot of the same members, but sounded really nothing like each other, not just because they had two diff- very different, distinctive singers and Steve Marriott and, and Rod Stewart, but because the approach to the playing was so different and mm-hmm. what they were trying to do, the small faces being, um, kind of at the top of the heap of, of mod bands, like proto punk rock type bands in, yeah, in, yeah, uh, yeah. in Britain along with the who and, and other bands that sounded like them. Um, 
in the late 60s. And then Faces, which was basically if you haven't heard the Faces and, and, and you go to listen to them, you suddenly go, oh, that's what the Black Crows were going for. Yeah. They were pretty much the blueprint for any like blues rock thing yeah, that came yeah. later. Um, and uh, With an extra layer of sleaze. Yeah, one of the dr- one of the greatest and drunkest it's a live bands. It is, yeah, well, it's everybody. So well, it's everything. But Ronnie Wood. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, but you know the faces. Uh, we all know. Uh, Stay with me, uh, and then their cover of um, maybe I'm amazed the Paul McCartney tune. But they released a lot of records that, admittedly, were not as good as their live show, but still really I think mm-hmm. significant. And mostly for me, like it was really educational getting to hear a drummer like Kenny, who was who's kind of sat in the middle sometimes between the like rock solidness in the pocket of John Bonham and the sort of the, the, like the, uh, crazy yeah. chaos of Keith Moon. Yeah. Um, I think he was able to do both. So the first one I picked for a kind of a provocative reason, which will become immediately obvious as soon as the vocal comes in is, uh, you need loving by the, uh, by the small faces. All right. Like uh, we're talking straight timeline. This style. was, I believe, this was '67. So yeah, this was, yeah. This was two years, at least a year before before. Not Steve Page. Marriott, right? Steve Marriott, yeah. yeah, who went on to be in Humble Pie, and a, and a, a number of other groups. Yeah. Um, God, that, that'd be awkward walking in for a pint. But a lot of that sounds like like some of those hits sound like gunshots going off. Oh, it's it sounds very, like he's smacking the absolute crap like, out of the drums. It's like, yeah. oh shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a heavy hitter, um, but but his pocket is there, and, and what what Adam was saying while we were listening to it is like, you can hear why they picked him mm. uh, to replace Keith moon is like, you know, he maybe wasn't, didn't have quite the reckless abandon that Keith had, but, but the Tom rolls and the way he tuned his drums. I mean, it was very much a UK. Yeah. London UK way sound. Of doing things, yeah. yeah. So, so that's Kenny Jones. And then uh, also um, only three or four years later, the, so the, the, the faces were formed when Steve left and they picked up Ronnie Wood and Rod Stewart from the Jeff Beck band. And, and that, that's, that's how the faces came about or just faces as some people refer to them. And so, um, did I pick flying or what was the wicked Wicked messenger? Messenger. Wicked messenger was there. There's so many great, um, tracks, but, but this is the one I picked just for the pocket.
that whole track is just a, it's just a drum lesson. I mean, yeah. like just pocket playing. Yeah. It does speed up some because like all like George Martin said, like all good rock and roll is supposed to speed up. But um, yeah, just the energy and like uh, I've learned a lot about playing simply with a lot of bombast from listening to to, to mm-hmm. Kenny Jones stuff. Uh, and he's the only surviving member of the Small Faces now that Ian McLagan just died recently. Yeah. So um, he's the only guy still around. And let's we should also point out that he had a he had a relatively hard time of it actually replacing uh, Keith Moon in yeah. the Who. And and um, he because that's had, a really easy. Those are some really easy shoes to fill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like how are you going to do that? But they, we were saying he was like Coy and Vance. The Coy and Vance Duke brothers, Duke boys. <laughs> the Duke cousins. The Duke cousins, Coy and Vance, <laughs> not Bo and Luke. But, um, like, you can hear a difference. Like, if you want to hear the difference between basically what Kenny Jones was doing and what Keith Moon was doing, you can listen to, say, like, I don't know, listen to, like, Won't Get Fooled Again or um, Going Mobile or something with Keith Moon playing drums. And then listen to Eminence Front mm-hmm. with Kenny Jones playing drums on The Who. And even when Kenny Jones was trying to do his kind of, like, uh, you know Keith Moon style Tom stuff like on songs like Athena or You Better You Bet mm-hmm. right um, it just wasn't the same right. yeah. and honestly like if you'd never heard of Keith Moon and you heard that song you'd think hey man this is a great song but with the knowledge with like just the ghost of of Keith Moon taking a shit on his head every opportunity <laughs> yeah, apparently, there was like nothing you could really the do ghost of well, Keith I think, Moon I mean I think after, after losing Keith uh, I think Pete came to the I mean I'm not gonna speak for him, but I read his I read his biography and like I think Pete kinda realized like, you know, it's important to have a drummer that fits, but it's also important to have somebody that's gonna stay alive and not like there's not gonna be like this not, toxicity in the end. Take fucking elephant tranquil. So, you know, it's you know, it's like all of us have experienced it's like it doesn't matter how good somebody can sing or play if you can't hang with them because if you're gonna be in a band if a van, in a van with them for hours in between gigs, like you gotta be able to get along. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I think, you know, they all knew the guys in the small faces from way back in the mod scene and this was a guy they knew they could trust and Daltrey was a lot more concerned about like it's not the show's not happening so they got Simon Phillips instead mm-hmm. who incidentally I saw I saw in 1989 so did I were you at that RFK stadium I was, I was there. at that gig yeah man that was a great fucking gig I was like 8 years old I, I, no, <laughs> I, like, I was like I was like 15 and I think really what, hot uh, for the first time in my life which this was uh, who 1989 who, the, the who, kids are all right 1989 at RFK stadium I, I had the t-shirt and then I left it at a beach house and I never forgave myself I still have yeah. the t-shirt lying around I well, found it at a beach house <laughs> right exactly yeah. anyway I, I think I think Kenny Jones is somebody that a lot more drummers should know about. So I'm glad yeah. we were able to talk about him. Yeah. And the, and like I said, those two extremes, I mean, he's definitely in the pocket on that one, but it, mm-hmm. it feels like probably because of running with like looser, smoother, and it's just like more sleazy. Yep. It's like, I mean, if you, uh, it's got some grease I, on it. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah, I think like the black crows comparisons, like what they were going for is, is for sure. But like, even compared to, uh, the stones, what they were doing faces was, like that was the band mm-hmm. like, not as a wink is as good as a wink is yeah. one of those things like surprisingly there are people who haven't heard it and nope. you give it to them and they're just like where the f- right. fuck did this come well from? a lot of it i mean for me growing up seeing like uh don't you think i'm sexy or whatever like rod stewart i was just gonna say 80s. that yeah like you i had to be told like probably three dozen times yeah. that there was actually a band that rod stewart was in that wasn't terrible right before right. i finally like, was like okay, was actually okay. cool okay. he was actually right. sexy. hello man I, I, I tend to celebrate <laughs> no, no, stewart's no, no, whole cattle no, 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 no. while we're talking crimes let's let's talk let's talk drummer crimes because do you guys want to know who wrote do you think i'm sexy who take a wild guess 
No, I don't want to know. <laughs> Carmine apiece. Ah, well, okay. That was totally makes sense. <laughs> that guy's that guy's mustache. That was sexy. <laughs> sexy was in every song yeah. title he ever. Every song he wrote had the word yeah, sexy. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, hey, Carmine. Like, what? what, yeah, what, what what's Carmine song, known for? What kind of song do you think a guy named Carmine apiece is going to write? All you have to do is see the like fold out picture of him in the centerfold of his of his famous infamous Center drumming book. <laughs> yeah. To like to realize what yeah what that is it's like Carmine some, like, some background for listeners uh, yeah. on Carmine a piece uh, Carmine vanilla fudge a piece, vanilla but, fudge okay. uh, he actually made more money selling kind of a rock drumming textbook Realistic which we all used yeah. which we all and it's a good textbook yeah. but he is he's he's well if you're teaching a guy who's like ten years old and doesn't yeah. never never played before I, there's other books I like to use for there him. are other he's books that are better but at the time. There weren't a lot of other books. Right, exactly. Right. He had star power and he yep. pushed a lot of copies. And he's, but, but all you need to know is like just you'd imagine that a guy from like Long Island named Carmine Apiece is going to be a greaseball. <laughs> and he's a greaseball. And the song Comes that he by wrote, honestly. The song that his he wrote, brother too, Vinny Apiece, or Ap- he, they, they pronounce their names differently. Is it Apiche? Yeah. His they brother, pronounce their names differently? Yeah. He pronounces oh it differently. <laughs> yeah, so he's doing, I guess he's doing Italian shame. Yeah, but his brother <laughs> played with, I don't know if it was with Black Sabbath or with the like the geezer from Black Sabbath, but right. I think he's, he's associated with that camp and he's he can hit too and he's yeah. legit i mean he's a great drummer but uh, he's a good drummer but like you you, you definitely yeah i can see that guy right you fucking do yeah, yeah. sexy by Rob drummer Stewart. crimes what yeah. other drummer well crimes we are all have? better for it <laughs> seems like a good enough stopping point for now i uh, hope you enjoyed that part one of our unsung drummers podcast part two is going to be coming straight for your ears uh, this Thursday, we're not going to wait a week. We're just going to we're just going to put it out, roll right through it, um, and uh, that way you can get the full experience and the full uh, sort of knowledge dump there. Uh, so you know, I hope hope everybody learns something, uh, maybe a new appreciation for some of the music that you actually already know. Um, I want to thank Ben and uh, Mike and Adam for coming down to the basement and uh, doing this. This is actually. A fun time. I, there's as much off mic conversation as this. So I don't know how we would ever put that out, but uh, there's some. Uh, this is really, really an insightful, insightful session here. Uh, also, want to point out that on the 22nd of this month, uh, this is March. Um, ben and Mike uh, participate and run a, a series at Seven Drum Lessons called Drumming for the Song. Uh, it's where they sort of dissect. The works of uh, musicians and drummers and stuff, and, and it's a very educational thing, and uh, they sell tickets to it. Uh, the one coming up on the twenty second is for Dave Grohl, who, as everybody knows, is you know sort of a monster drummer, maybe the last living rock star. Uh, who knows? Uh, at any rate, uh, that is coming up on the twenty second. So if all of this uh, seem to be your jam, I am go- going to almost guarantee that that will be so. Uh, the link in the show notes look at it click on it buy your tickets show up uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see you there Uh, thank you for listening this is the end of part one of Unsung Drummers podcast so uh, this has been episode 106 of Chunky Glasses podcast we'll talk to you on Thursday see you later guys